Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this is going to be a series of several vodcasts, and actually the topic is going to be an interesting one. Um, the topic here is going to be sort of what I would call hot topics in CT, what the literature is telling us. And what I've noticed is that I've collected a bunch of things that I think are very important over the last few months, and this is going to be material that was published basically January to April 2015. And it's things that we eventually will put in our lectures, but sometimes it just doesn't fit in a lecture at the current time. And so I thought I would go through with you. Some of this material, at least a lot of the quotes, are actually within uh, CTSS already. They're in the Pearl section, so it's very important to potentially uh, look there. So I'm going to try to go over with you what have I learned uh, those last few months. So I'll cover a few topics. The first one is, what's the current status of the use of CTA in the evaluation of the extremities? And I've spoken before in my trauma talks that CTA is very valuable, especially if you can use dual energy. This article by Adibi, our findings demonstrate that CTA is an effective modality for the evaluation of lower extremity gunshot wounds and can help limit more invasive procedures such as catheters to this group of patients. And I think that's very important. Most patients can be managed conservatively. Again, there's a question, is there vascular injury or not? CTA is very good for looking at that. When you look at the, a, a DB's article in more detail, CT findings indicative of arterial injury were observed in a third of their patients. Uh, the most common was focal narrowing or spasm. The most common artery involved was the superficial femoral. They used a qualitative assessment of images based on a four-point grading system, and essentially CTA was excellent in most cases. Surgical findings were consistent with the CTA findings. Now, if you ask me what are the challenges, I would say that in gunshot wounds, sometimes the challenge, not from the injury perspective, but if there's a lot of uh, shrapnel, you get lots of artifact and can obscure detail. I think another challenge sometimes is spasm versus vessel occlusion. Is the vessel occluded or is there just simply spasm present? With spasm, the vessel is narrowed for shorter, longer segment, but there's no extravasation of contrast, but the vessel still remains patent. So again, it's sometimes a difficult diagnosis. We did publish a similar article um, within the uh, last uh, year as well, looking at very similar findings, and I'll cover that with you in a moment as well. And in this article by Fritz, uh, speaking about extravasation, and instead of looking at lower extremity, which we had previously published on, this was upper extremity, and you can see that CTA defined all of the typical trauma things you'll be thinking about, from AV fistulas to pseudoaneurysms. Again, it's a very good guide, whether it's for surgery or whether it's for interventional procedures. Uh, direct CTA findings of arterial injuries include active extravasation, luminal narrowing, lack of contrast or pacification, filling defects, AV fistulas, and pseudoaneurysm. So again, CTA really sees the entire spectrum of pathology, and it's a very easy way, cost-effective, non-invasive, of involving and evaluating this difficult group of patients. Also, as we know, it takes very little... Um, of the patient's cooperation, which in many of these cases is what you're going to end up getting. Okay, another topic. Is there anything new for delivery of IV contrast that I should know about? Well, the answer is yes. One of the questions I keep getting on CT is us, and people ask me to address, is about central lines. 
when can you use them, when can't you use them? This answer will depend on the institution. At Hopkins, in order for us to use central lines, they need to be the special power injectable pick lines. You know, they're purple typically. They have a marker that says they're power injectable up to five cc's. People have routinely used central lines, but people have had catastrophes as well. You often don't know what the rate of injection you can use it, where the central line is placed. And so really, uh, central lines, pick lines, are something that can be problematic. Now, when you use low flow rates, perhaps, when you inject it by hand, perhaps, it might be okay. But we do not use pick lines for power injection. That's unless they're power picked. And when they're power picked, you know it. There's a marker on it. It's very clear. One thing very important is to get your ICUs, your oncology patients, uh, to use power picks so that the times you need to have access, you're able to. Often they're a touch more expensive than non-power picks, but I think in patients where the catheter is going to be in, be in there for a while, I think it's definitely uh, worth the money. Um, there used to be a question about picks and uh, complications like infection. As long as you're carefully taking care of the pick line properly, it's typically not going to be a problem. Now, another question comes up is gauge of catheter. And when we think about all the CTAs we're doing, we always said we need an 18-gauge catheter if you want to inject 5 cc's a second. Yes, you can use a 20-gauge catheter, but it's kind of taking more of a risk. Surely a 22 is a consideration, but it should not be used. A 20-gauge catheter, and now from the ACR guidelines, the ACR contrast manual, saying if it's 3 ml or higher per second, a 20-gauge or better is necessary. Antecubital large forearm vein is preferred. If a more peripheral site like the hand and wrist is used, a flow rate no greater than 1.5 ml per second is used. So you can see when you're using a hand vein, you have to be very, very careful. Now, if you look at articles that are published, and I'll show you one of them, most extravasations occur when people use peripheral access. And that's the easiest place to extravasate. And the hematoma or the uh, contrast uh, collection can occur very, very quickly. Now, one of the things I always like to comment on is people injecting ca catheters when they're sitting within the scanner room, you press the button, go, and then say, well, if the patient complains, we'll stop. Patients never complain because non-ionic contrast doesn't hurt. They don't complain until they got a giant bump on their hand, wrist, arm, or wherever. So what we do is we're in the room for the first 15 seconds. Most extravasations happen early. And so if you're in the room with your hand on the injection site, you can know if there's an extravasation and you stop it right away. Now you'll say, well, I'm in the room. What about radiation dose? There's no radiation dose because we don't start scanning to at least 25 seconds and we're leaving at 15 seconds. So there is no issue. And again, communication between technologists and the patient uh, is critical. And I don't like it from a television system or an intercom. You need to be there for at least those first 15 seconds. And when it's a difficult stick, maybe even longer. And again, this was from the ACR manner, manual. Now, what else could we do? And so one of the things we wrote about, this is Pam Johnson, Gail Christensen, was perhaps we can use a different type of catheter. Now, the classic catheters are single-hold catheters. 
What if you have a fenestrated catheter with multiple side holes? And that is something that was looked at. And in this article, a 20-gauge fenestrated catheter performs similar to an 18-gauge non-fenestrated catheter with respect to effusion rates of contrast, enhancement levels, and so you can no longer have a need for an 18, you always can use a 20. Now, this was developed by Beck and Dickinson and his Nexiva Diffusix catheters. Look at the injection rate. 20 gauge catheter can get 10 cc's a second, 20 to 6.5. So why would you ever need to have an 18 gauge catheter? You don't. We routinely now are putting in 20 gauge, and if patient has poor access, a 22 works very nicely. Even a 24 can give you three cc's a second, which means you can inject pediatric patients at three cc's a second. I don't want to go into the BD product, but here's just a chart. You can look it up online or call your BD salesman. Um, we have no conflict of interest there. But again, it's easy to use. And for the patient, it's wonderful because you're putting a smaller needle in. Here's how they look, 18 versus 20. And again, the multiple side holes. And there was another article by Johnson looking at the effect of IV contrast gauge uh, and on image quality. And uh, her conclusions were good when you had the 20 gauge uh, uh, BD, it was just like having a classic 18 gauge. Uh, again, IV access, how good are you? Well, it depends of uh, who's doing the needle placement. Uh, very experienced people. We use IV um, needle teams of people. So they have lots and lots of experience. If you have a lot of people that don't have much experience, it's going to be harder to get an 18 in or even a 20. You're going to have higher extravasation rates, higher multiple needle stick rates. The smaller the needle you use, the more likely you will be successful, the more likely the patient will be happy. And if you can do it without compromising the study, it's absolutely wonderful. Now, this thing about ejection rates and speed, sometimes people ask the question, does faster injection rates result in higher extravasation? In your mind, it should, but there are many other factors, volume, contrast type, needle type, and gauge of needle. And so there was a couple articles published looking at that. This article by Weback, automated IV injection applying high flow rates is performed without increased risk of extravasation. The key thing to them was if you had small catheters and locations in the hand, that's when you're going to get a higher extravasation rate. Simply uh, using a well-placed needle in an area beyond the hand, you're not going to have any problems. And so performing high flow rates with low uh, diameter IV catheters like a 22 and a hand location is going to give you all sorts of problems. So the answer is do not do it. And that's what their results showed. The results also showed that extravasation rates were higher in older patients, perhaps because their, their veins are more fragile. And that makes a lot of sense as well. So of course, what you want to, might consider doing is, in those patients, use a 22 uh, BD catheter. Then you'll have less issues, if any issues at all. Now, I know we do not like to talk about extravasation rates. We're very good at that, but extravasation does happen. Most extravasations, if you're careful, are a few cc's and there's no issue. But what happens if somehow you have that thing that happens to everyone a couple times a year when you have a large extravasation? Large means better than 50 cc's of contrast. What do you do? Who do you call? What are the key parameters in patient management? 
And when do you need to call a plastic surgeon or just a surgeon in general? It's somewhat interesting. Whenever we had extravasation of more than 30 or 40 cc's, we'd always call a surgeon because it was our opinion that if the radiologist looks and manages the patient, what if the patient has problems a day later? We're also not the most experienced people. Plastic surgeons are the best, and if you're worrying about compartment syndrome, there are the guys to basically look after. Well, there was an article by S. Biddy who said that extravasation of CT contrast is a relatively frequent complication, but complications of that extravasation, which include compartment syndrome, skin sloughing, and necrosis, are indeed very rare. They hypothesized that that was because of non-ionic contrast, and it's true. When we use ionic contrast years and years ago, a minimal extravasation, the patient don't have severe pain, it was easy to get tissue necrosis. So the good news, the contrast is safer, and his conclusion was uh, you probably don't need to call the plastic surgeon basically ever. You can take care of things yourself, and he did look at one series of patients, 102 consecutive cases, immediately surgery, therapy was necessary in zero, okay? Uh, they talk about plastic consultation when uh, less than 100 cc's occurred. And their feeling was trends for consultation remained without discernible pattern when patients were stratified by age, amount of extravasation, or anatomic location. Conservative management was recommended in all cases. So, again, I still think if you're at all uncomfortable, the patient's complaining, get plastic surgery. It is harder to do that now, and the literature tends to seem to say, manage yourself. So if you're managing yourself, what are you doing? Well, everybody agrees, limb elevation. But what about ice packs? What about heat? Well, that's going to be somewhat controversial. No one is agreeing on what the answer would be. But again, remember, if you're in doubt, get the surgeon. I know they may not want to come. It's much more difficult now in this epic era because you need to have an order given to drive the clinician. Just get somebody to see the patient. Now, the guidelines that the uh, U.S. uses, the American College of Radiology, and the ESUR, the European guidelines, are very much the same, and it's definitely worth a reading. Now, when you have extravasation, I used to always ask people, do I put heat, do I put cold, what do I do? I never can get an answer. And in fact, when you looked it up in the literature, you never could find an answer. A recent article published from a pediatric radiologist, 95% elevate the extremity. Okay, we agree on that. 76% use ice and 45% use heat. Well, first thing is that's 121%. So some people use ice and heat, one than the other. Again, uh, everyone agrees about elevation, which decreases capillary hydrostatic pressure and promotes resorption. However, the use of ice or heat, there really is no clear study. So I think uh, it's very, very important to have one guidelines in your institution, but almost any plan you have works. Most people typically like to use ice right away and maybe heat a day or so later. Just to make the point, uh, finishing up about contrast, there was an article looking at pediatric radiologists, what type of uh, uh, catheters they use. 49% reported 22 gauge is the smallest catheter used with a power injector, although up to one third had used a power injector for 24 gauge. At Hopkins, 22s, they're typically going by hand. Again, if you're very careful, you can use a power injector on a 22 gauge needle, but not any, any higher than that. 
Now, the last thing I'll comment on in this first part of the talk is do people get delayed reactions to IV contrast? And I remember way back when, I'm ashamed to say, people would call up and say, three days later, we have a, I have a reaction to the contrast. And I would say, or we would say, no, you don't. It must be something else you're allergic to. We always thought contrast reactions happened within minutes and surely hours. Well, the fact is that's not exactly true. Immediate reactions to contrast occur at time of injection to one hour after contrast administration. It is true most reactions occur in the first five minutes. These reactions may be either allergic-like or chemotoxic. When you talk about delayed reactions, that's an adverse event occurring from more than 60 minutes to one week after the administration of contrast material. The majority of these reactions occur between 6 and 12 hours after, but it can be days later. Uh, when you look at this article by Egbert, delayed adverse reactions, DARs, the contrast media, are not rare, but are often not recognized as being linked to contrast administration. It may be falsely ascribed to other drugs. These side effects are usually problematic because the patient's not under medical supervision. So it is indeed a problem, but it's something you need to be aware of. The American College of Radiology states that most cases of delayed reactions are self-limited and require no or minimal treatment. In case of moderate or severe reactions that are progressive or widespread, the ACR recommends antihistamines, corticosteroids are both for skin manifestations, antipyretics for fever, antiemetics for nausea, and fluid resuscitation for hypotension. So it's something that you really need to be aware of. It's something that is indeed very important if people call up. Now, a question people ask me all the time is, if someone has a delayed reaction, do I give them contrast the next time or do I pre-medicate? Uh, we pre-medicate. But again, you need to be very careful. Remember, some people used to request people stay in the CT area for an hour after the study. That's because most reactions are within the hour that they can incur hours later. So again, it's something to be aware of. And with that, why don't we take a 10-minute break, get some uh, coffee or Diet Coke, and let's get started back up in 10 minutes. <music> 